Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful, crisp day here in Seattle. This is Brad Warren at Global Ocean Health Program of the National Fisheries Conservation Center. Today, uh, I'm really glad uh, to introduce uh, Mike Robinson, who is entrepreneur in residence at the University of Washington here in Seattle. And he's doing a lot of work in a field that's central to, uh, to our work. And we're very interested in, in, in learning more. This is on carbon removal and the new technologies emerging to do it. And Mike, with that, I'm going to go ahead and ask you uh, not to give me the full introduction, but why is this, to, why is this an entrepreneur in residence job? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, there, there's something here about the, the need to, to, uh, to treat it in an entrepreneurial way, I want you I, and I want you to talk about that. Oh, that's a good point. That's a, that's a good fit. So yeah, the entrepreneur entre, entrepreneur in residence uh, job is basically helping innovations get from the lab to the marketplace. So um, I, I work with University of Washington, and University of Washington spends uh, you know over a billion and a half a year in research money. And all of that research is supposed to yield interesting things. <clears throat> and when it does, um, those interesting things need to get out into the world and have an impact um, frequently by becoming businesses. Uh, and that's, that's quite a journey to get from a, an aha moment, uh, you know, in a research project to a company uh, with a clear vision of the product and, uh, and knowledge of the customer and, uh, everything that goes with operating a company, a brand and a team and, and financing. And that's, um, you know, that's kind of where we are with carbon removal. Um, this is a, a gargantuan challenge facing us and we'll get into that more later. Uh, and we're not really quite sure yet how we're going to do this. Um, but there's a lot of people trying a lot of really interesting ideas. And when those ideas, um, uh, you know, start to look like something viable, then uh, it does take an entrepreneurial mindset to uh, pick up that idea and turn the idea into uh, a product or an activity and uh, turn it into a company that's out there having an impact. Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, now, let's just go to sort of fundaments here. Uh, what is carbon removal and why do we need it? Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. Carbon really isn't a problem, is it? I mean, carbon is uh, what we're made of <laughs> and uh, there's vast amounts of it on the planet and that's not a problem. The problem is that we have taken gigatons, that's billions of tons, hundreds of billions of tons of carbon out of the ground and spewed it into the atmosphere as CO2. Um, and so carbon's not a problem and O2 oxygen is not a problem, but CO2 is a problem uh, because you've got these molecules and other greenhouse gases floating around in the atmosphere and uh, they trap heat and they're warming our planet and changing our climate as we can see happening all around us. Um, carbon removal, uh, or carbon dioxide removal, also it's called CDR, carbon dioxide removal, um, refers to trying to reverse that process, essentially trying to clean up our mess. So, you know, I think of if you knock over a, a, a jug of milk in the kitchen or something like that, um, what do you do? Well, you 
you pick it up and stop spilling. And we need to do that. We need to stop spilling carbon into the atmosphere. Um, but you also mop up what you spilled. And we need to do that too. Um, and so this has been an idea that's been around for, for quite a while. And people have been working on it for quite a while. Um, and there are folks, uh, including myself, who are in favor of something called climate restoration, um, which means actually mopping up everything we spilled. Um, and that is, a, uh, that is a, a real challenge, but would um, you know, have the impact of bringing us back to a pre-industrial uh, atmosphere and a pre-industrial climate. Um, even short of that goal, though, what has changed recently is the IPCC uh, has concluded that there is no way we are going to um, maintain uh, 1.5 degrees or less of warming without using carbon removal extensively. So uh, there are there are certain activities that um, you know we're going to continue doing that are going to continue emitting, and we're going to need carbon removal to offset that just to get to net zero. So the, 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 the basic thesis is that you can get some emissions are, are eliminated, but getting them all is going to take some time. In the meantime, we're out of time to get the job done, uh, to hit that target, uh, or really any meaningful climate target, uh, by means of simply making less mess. I think that's, it, 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 is that a quick summary of it? It is. And we, we missed it. Uh, by lollygagging for decades, right? I mean, yes, uh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so here we are. Uh, uh, the the bills are due, and uh, the, what's due is really interesting because it it, it requires us to develop uh, not technologies for making less mess. We have plenty of those, but technologies for cleaning up mess, and we're 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 not yet very good at that. Uh, and I, I wonder if you could. Give me a, a, a typology of the options, broadly speaking. Just kind of tick through the options. We won't go into deep detail yet. Well, um, you know, the the good news, the bad news, like you said, is is we dragged our feet and didn't stop spilling fast enough and uh, haven't decarbonized our economy fast enough. And consequently, we're in a really difficult position where we simultaneously need to very quickly decarbonize our economy, meaning stop burning things. And... Uh, learn how to clean up what we've spilled. Um, and the, the, the better news uh, is that, you know, there are thousands of teams all around the world working on different ideas, different possible solutions. Um, some of them are quite far along and, and are actually being deployed and others are, you know, still in a lab somewhere. <clears throat> um, they fall into, you asked about sort of typology, um, there's a category of solutions around forest and soil. Uh, so obviously planting trees, uh, lots and lots and lots of them. Um, but we don't have enough land to plant enough trees to do this job. It's just the math doesn't work. Um, and adjacent to forests um, is a type of solution called soil carbon. So changing farming practices and um, getting more carbon stored in soils uh, is a whole area of focus. Um, and then there are um, direct air capture type technologies. So a, a collection of ways of literally sort of vacuuming the CO2 out of air and, uh, and storing it um, either underground or locking it into um, durable products or uh, turning it to stone. Then there's a category of solutions um, called enhanced weathering. 
um, which is basically taking natural processes that exist, you know, uh, that the planet's been doing forever, where certain kinds of rock um, will attach to CO2 from the air and bind it up. And uh, there's a number of different efforts to take processes like that and accelerate them um, and essentially, uh, you know, create the natural conditions for these different kinds of rock to be able to access CO2 from the air and grab it. Um, and then there are uh, ocean solutions. And those fall into a couple of categories, one being coastal, uh, you know, um, essentially mangroves and other um, coastal vegetation solutions. Uh, and then the other being uh, a variety of things that people are trying that um, can capture CO2 and uh, either use uh, the open ocean as a, as a capture platform. Uh, and in some cases, people are looking at the ability of the ocean to store some of the CO2 that's captured as well. And uh, of the solutions in the ocean that are, uh, are using, for example, mangrove, that's like trees. That's about photosynthesis, right? Yes. Okay. And then the ones that are not about photosynthesis, those tend to be about binding the CO2 in mineral or salt form, if I understand right. Right. And the, and the photosynthesis options actually are, um, there's a few different ones that people are looking at with regard to ocean CDR. One is uh, coastal blue carbon. Um, so yeah, enhancing the, the mangrove uh, forests uh, so that they expand and take up more CO2. Another one is uh, growing kelp or other seaweed, um, that's, a, that's a plant that grabs CO2 from the air and it grows very fast. Um, and there are folks, a couple of companies actively launched and funded actually, that are uh, planning to grow seaweed at very large scale. Uh, and what they're proposing right now is to sink it. Um, there's some questions about that, of course. Uh, and then the third option for photosynthesis is, is microalgae or phytoplankton. Those are little tiny plants that grow really, really fast. Uh, and so they're very good at taking up carbon. Um, but, uh, the question is, uh, you know, where do you grow it and, and what do you do with it? Um, so those are all photosynthetic. Um, then, uh, the mineral options are, um, mostly around ocean alkalinization. Um, which allows the ocean to uh, take up more CO2 from the air by uh, binding some of the CO2 that's, that's already in the water uh, to uh, alkaline salts. Um, uh, there are a couple of efforts that I know of um, that involve, you could think of it as sort of like filtering um, or electrochemically treating seawater um, to remove the CO2. Um, so that's that's kind of yeah broadly the categories I think, right, right, yeah that's right. It's what worth uh, covering that ground, and uh, of the electrical electrochemical options, uh, there's uh, it, it, several of them I think wind up making hydrogen, uh, which gets kind of interesting in itself in terms of the feedback loop to the energy system. You've got a co-product that potentially has considerable value. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, one of them that is is public and out there is a, a project called Sea Change, or a company called Sea Change, uh, out of the University of uh, California, Los Angeles, um, and 
that one is an electrochemical process that uh, it would be shore-based, presumably, um, but seawater would be pumped through uh, a, a device that uh, electrolyzes the water and produces hydrogen. Um, but in the process, it also causes um, alkaline salts in the seawater to bind with CO2 and, and precipitate carbonate. So essentially, it's uh, mimicking the way seashells are formed and accelerating that. Um, and so that looks promising because it produces hydrogen, which is, you know, uh, one of our future energy uh, solutions. And it uh, takes CO2 out of the seawater and binds it up as mineral. Um, the, the only challenge with that is that the uh, remaining seawater now has those minerals depleted. Uh, and so that um, it makes it a little bit more acidic. So that needs to be handled as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Very good point. I mean, it, it, there's uh, 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 there's not a lot of free lunches out there. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, you, you've um, you've mentioned that there are questions about some of these, and, and there's a dimension of question that I think uh, really has to be addressed. And this is um, uh, if we pursue this kind of approach, are we not? creating uh, an, an infinite indulgence that we sell to polluters. What is the, it, what distinguishes this from the selling of indulgences? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a genuine concern. Um, you know, it's, it's referred to as the moral hazard argument that uh, if we, um, if we try to learn how to take CO2 out of the atmosphere and mop up what we spill, then that might give people a free pass to keep spilling. Uh, and, and in particular, you know, that people are worried, legitimately worried, I think, that um, this could be used by a massive industry that wants to keep doing what they're doing because they're making a lot of money at it. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's what industries do. That's what they're supposed to do is try to keep making money doing what they're doing. That's how our whole system is set up. So there's a massive incentive for um, companies to be able to continue to pull stuff out of the ground and burn it. And if we, um, if we start to rely exclusively on uh, carbon removal as the solution or, or CCS is a, a carbon capture and storage is a cousin of carbon removal where the carbon is captured at the point of emissions at the, at the smokestack essentially for a factory or power plant. Um, if we rely too heavily on that, then people could get complacent and say, oh, well, it's okay if we keep pulling carbon out of the ground and burning it. And we can't let that happen. Uh, this is not in any way uh, an alternative to reducing emissions. It is an addition to reducing emissions. And, uh, and in fact, we have been so slow at reducing emissions that we now absolutely have to learn how to do this because it's the only way to even get to net zero. Um, so that's a scary, sobering reality that we've waited that long. Um, the, the silver lining for me, I'm an optimist. You can't be an entrepreneur and not be an optimist. Uh, but uh, the, the silver lining is that because we have to get good at this, removing carbon from the air and the oceans, if we get really, really good at it, um, then we will be in a position to pursue the, the higher goal of, uh, or the higher bar of climate restoration. Once we're, uh, you know, 
once we've created a carbon removal industry, which is what we're going to need to create, um, then with a luck and a fair win, that industry itself will have momentum. And uh, if we get really good at it and it gets really cheap, then it becomes, um, you know, realistically conceivable that we could actually restore the climate and clean up most or all of what we spilled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful vision. And it, it's, uh, it, I, I can see the appeal. I, a question in my mind beholding this vision is how do you transform this from what's not yet an industry? It's kind of a bunch of really interesting R&D projects that don't have, for the most part, a market. I mean, there's a voluntary market. And then there's this um, still uh, modest uh, uh, regulatory market for carbon, all of which pay well, with rare exceptions, in in you know in the Scandinavian countries, there's a few prices that are, you know, high enough to start getting in the ballpark to to pay for some of the methods that are still expensive. Uh, um, but it, most of the pricing bunches up toward the you know the single digit dollars per ton or double digits in you know up to twenty thirty dollars mostly. Uh, only a few go above fifty. And um, in, in when I look at the the cost per ton that people project for many of these methods, it's well above that. Uh, you know, it, it, is there is there a realistic way to to cross that order of magnitude difference in price uh, and uh, get these physical services? They're not digital services. They're not going to benefit from Moore's law in the same way that computing has. I mean, is there a way to get them? over that, you know, it's at least an order of magnitude hurdle in price. I think that it happens in two ways. One is the price is going to come up. It has to. Um, and and that's a, a function of demand coming up. Um, so let me come back to that part of it. The other part that happens is the cost uh, will come down. Um, and we've seen this um, you know, many times you mentioned Moore's law in computing. That's uh, a, a famous example on a very, very steep and fast cost reduction curve. But we also have seen this in um, renewable energy. So solar panels, when they were first developed, were insanely expensive and were only, you know, it only makes sense for things like space missions. Um, but over time, as our demand increases and our volume increases and people continue to innovate uh, in small and large ways, um, you know, we achieve economies of scale to the point where solar is now the cheapest thing that you can build. If you're starting from scratch, if you, if you need power today, it's cheaper to build, uh, solar farms than it is to build a coal fired power plant. Um, and the same has happened with wind. And so the same thing can happen, uh, with carbon removal technologies. The way that that happens is, um, Firstly, where we are now, and I think you accurately categorized it as a, as a collection of technologies that we're exploring, and it's not yet coalesced as an industry. I, I, I don't know really what the numbers are, but I, I would guess if there's 5,000 people employed today in carbon removal, that's, you know, uh, I'd be surprised if it's much more than that. And given the size of what we need to do in carbon removal, um, there are expectations that the carbon removal industry is going to have to grow to be the size of today's oil and gas industry. 
because we're pretty much trying to take what we've been doing and put it in reverse. Let's go there for a minute. Let's just dwell on that point. I think people don't really get that, you know, it took an oil and gas industry to make this mess and it's going to take something that big to fix it. And um, there's, there's an element of this that um, it, it, it many people that I've talked to seem to imagine that this can look like sort of a, um, oh, a, you know, a small planet solution. We can do this with, with pretty gardens. Um, and, you know, uh, it, 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 it can all be small scale. And uh, that's obviously more comfortable. But is it actually possible? Can we do this? With a, with you know the, the clean green biological approaches that that are all done at small scale. Um, you know I uh, I don't think there's going to be any silver bullet. There's not going to be one solution that we do. So I don't think it's going to be either um, you know one technology that gets deployed in centralized massive plants or um, a bunch of people planting trees in their backyard. It's going to be all of that. Um, if you think about it, like you said, it took an oil and gas and coal industry to create this problem, but the industry didn't create this problem. I mean, we all have based our our way of living around the uh, the energy that we get from burning fossil fuels, and you know that's actually been a great ride for humanity. We've we've accomplished a lot, and we can do a lot of things now that we couldn't do before. But now we know, well, we knew quite a while ago, and now we really, really know that we can't keep doing that. It has a consequence, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so we didn't get into this problem with just one bad habit, and we're not going to get out of it with one silver bullet. It's going to, it's going to be many, many solutions that get deployed in whichever way is appropriate for, for those solutions. And it, it will include, in my opinion, large industrial looking facilities that are, you know, doing their, uh, their fair share of the heavy lifting to clean this up. And, you know, run the, the future scope here. You know, I, I can hear the whirring behind you as, as we speak, as you started up and uh, it, it's, uh, uh, and look at that future. And describe some of those facilities, the big industrial ones. Sure. What are they? Where are they? What are they doing? There's a good example uh, for listeners that, that want to look at it. Um, there's a plant called the Orca plant in Iceland. Um, I, I'm not sure if the name had anything to do with our, our beloved whales here or not, uh, but uh, the Orca plant in Iceland um, powered by an, uh, a direct air capture technology from Climeworks and a uh, underground carbon storage technology from a company called CarbFix. Um, it is, what does it look like? It looks like um, about uh, 16 shipping containers with giant fans in the sides of them uh, mounted in a square facing each other uh, with a bunch of pipes connecting them. And those pipes then run off to uh, a wellhead, essentially, that pumps that CO2 underground so that it can mineralize in uh, basalt formations under Iceland. And they built this in Iceland because Iceland has um, geothermal power. So there's a lot of uh, zero carbon power available to run the system. And Iceland has Iceland is a massive basalt formation. And that's one of the ways that we can put this put the carbon back in the ground where we got it 
uh, is to pump it into basalt formations where it will mineralize. So that plant um, is, um, you know, maybe it's a, a football field sized facility. Um, and that plant is the largest one in operation today. It is pulling down 4,000 tons of CO2 per year. We need to pull down 10 to 50 billion tons of CO2 per year. So um, it's a great start. It shows one of the ways that this is possible. Um, and it does help with that envisioning the future. I think that's a big piece of value that the orca plant brings is it's just something people can look at and they, they can get it in their mind's eye. Okay, I see. We can do this. We, we actually can clean this up. Um, and we're going to need a lot more of these and a lot more of other kinds of, uh, other kinds of plants, be they physical industrial plants or the kind that we, uh, that have roots and put carbon in the ground. The numbers you just spoke really jump to my attention. You said this facility is 4,000 tons, and we're going to need to do 10 to 50 billion tons a year. Yes. So yeah. that's a lot of zeros difference that we're going to have to yes. make up. Um, yes. Once this gets to scale, are we going to be looking at facilities that look like Port Fouchon, Louisiana, uh, you know, big oil port kind of things with massive pipes and, you know, uh, 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 tender vessels that are the size of really big <laughs> tugboats and, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, it, all ports devoted to it. I think that's, I think that's going to be part of it. Yeah. Um, there are um, plans afoot um, within the Department of Energy to uh, site a number of, um, of carbon removal hubs around the country. This is just in the US. I mean, this is happening all around the world, but those carbon removal hubs are um, meant to be located in places where the the geology of the area is suitable for pushing the carbon back into the ground where we got it. Um, and they are, um, you know, going to have a, a whole, the idea is that a whole industry around carbon management or carbon upcycling, meaning grabbing CO2 out of the air and turning it into products uh, or storing it underground. Um, uh, you know, that those industries um, will develop around these carbon removal hubs. And it's essentially, um, you know, intentionally uh, designing a new industry uh, that, again, needs to be as big as today's oil and gas industry. Now, one of the cool things about that, though, is we have the opportunity to um, design this new industry with equity and justice in mind and, you know, with greater intentionality than the, the way the oil and gas industry grew. Um, so in addition to the fact that these giant plants are, are going to be cleaning the air rather than spewing more CO2 into it. Um, uh, we also can, in siting these facilities and in allocating uh, the funding for, for this new industry, um, we can uh, you know, take into account uh, some equity and justice considerations that uh, nobody really thought much about when they, when they built the old industry. Right. Tell me about those for a minute. What's uh, what are the equity and justice issues you see looming ahead as we you know gear up to create 
for the in an interesting intentional way as you say an, an industry that that uh perhaps uh no industry uh, on that scale has ever been built with that kind of intention i mean what what what's it going to be uh what are the equity issues it's going to be facing well i think it's um you know there's a, a whole vast web of equity issues uh involving impacts on uh you know uh underserved communities um, and involving uh, economic opportunity for those communities. Uh, and so I can give you a couple examples. Uh, in Washington state, the Climate Commitment Act that was uh, signed into law in May uh, anticipates establishing a, a marketplace for carbon credits uh, that will grow over the coming decades. And um, a portion of that well, it, it, there's a number of provisions in that act that um, direct the uh, the use of those funds uh, to uh, you know to be deployed with considerations towards um, towards equity. So there's, for example, a certain amount of that funding that is targeted for uh, tribal lands, um, and there's a certain percentage of uh, there's a limited amount of offsets. By the way, that uh, that it, polluters or emitters, I'm sorry, are uh, allowed to um, allowed to buy. You can't just buy offsets. You have to mostly reduce your emissions, but there's a small amount of your emissions where you're allowed to buy offsets. And a portion of those offsets are reserved for uh, projects deployed on tribal lands. Um, there are also a number of considerations in that act uh, around, um, you know, communities that have been disproportionately impacted by uh, the the highly emitting uh, industries uh, and making sure that those communities get uh, get some attention uh, both economically and in terms of um, uh, you know environmental issues that are that are impacting those communities. So that's the Washington Climate Commitment Act in New York. Uh, there's a measure uh, being introduced. Maybe it has just been introduced in the New York Assembly uh, called the Carbon Removal Leadership Act. And that similarly anticipates uh, establishing a market um, for uh, carbon removal credits, so paying people to to do this work, um, and that allows the um, the state uh, regulators who will develop the marketplace allows them to factor in a variety of different equity and justice considerations in terms of. Uh, how they weigh the uh, the bids for the carbon credits that will be purchased by the marketplace. So, um, you know, there, there's a whole collection, a whole web of of uh, issues that can be taken into account and are be taken are being taken into account uh, in in designing this new industry. In some ways, it's kind of like, you know, we we didn't know that burning fossil fuels was going to be a problem, right? We, we thought this is great. You know, this lets us get, take a train from coast to coast and then a plane from coast to coast. And it lets us have, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, electricity at the flip of a switch. And that's been wonderful. And then we kind of figured out that actually, yeah, gee, this has a consequence too, like everything we do. And doing it at this scale all around the world has a consequence on the entire planet. Um, but what we, you know, as that industry was growing, it, it, we weren't building it with intentionality and, and 
these considerations, um, you know, were mostly not taken into account. And now they can be. You know, there's a there's a, a field where that kind of intention does play to some extent. And in, in interesting ways, I've been wondering if there are models to be drawn from it. And this is the, the development of uh, the institution of the public utility and the regulated private utility. These are functioning with accountability to the public that's kind of unique, uh, or at least unusual, uh, in, in the history of the development of businesses uh, in at least North America. Um, and I wonder if, uh, if, if they do represent a model we could learn from in, the, in, the, uh, in designing the kind of future we want for a, a carbon removal as it grows into an industry. Yeah, I think that's a that is a good way to look at it. Um, there are, um, like I mentioned, the Carbon Removal Leadership Act that is uh, being considered in New York and is also um, they're trying to get folks to pick it up in uh, California and Colorado and possibly in Washington and, and Arizona and some other states as well. Um, and the uh, design of that legislation. Um, the, the kind of the heart of it really is is something called a reverse auction. So the it's it's uh, a program where the state uh, offsets the state's own emissions from from operation of state government uh, by purchasing carbon removal credits. Um, and this is uh, actually in some ways following the lead of of private corporations that have led the way on this. So. Uh, Microsoft and Stripe and Shopify and Swiss Re and some other companies have uh, jumped out front and started purchasing carbon removal credits and done it in a way that uh, has an eye towards supporting the development of new technologies as we're learning how to do this. So those those companies are paying a lot more for their carbon removal credits than the the voluntary market that you described at, um, you know, tens of dollars per pound or per ton, uh, they're, they're paying thousands in some cases because what they want to do is be the first buyer of the first thousand tons for a new technology, because, um, what we need right now is to learn how to do this and we need to support those activities. Uh, so, um, in this uh, reverse auction model uh, that is proposed for the for the states to buy carbon credits, um, there are uh, there are provisions for the the state agencies to uh, craft a set of rules around um, ensuring that the credits they're buying are high quality credits, meaning that uh, they're real, they're additional. It's not paying somebody to do something they were going to do anyway. So they, they result in additional removals. Um, they are permanent or they are persistent at least. So they're, they're not something that uh, is, you know, paying somebody to not cut down this particular tree this year, um, but paying somebody to get some CO2 out of the air or out of the ocean uh, and lock it up for a long time. Um, and they're verifiable. So it's, uh, it's not just somebody saying, I did it, it's measurable. We can see uh, evidence that um, the carbon was in fact removed. So uh, there are provisions in there to ensure that they're high quality. The reverse auction structure uh, is designed to ensure that, um, you know, it's, it's essentially the lowest bidder uh, 
uh, you know, the, the, the company that can sell these credits at the lowest cost, uh, to the, the buyer, which is us, um, will be the winner, but, uh, with provisions for, uh, you know, uh, giving consideration to equity and justice concerns that are enumerated in the legislation, uh, as well as potentially for states to decide to support uh, in-state uh, projects with preference, uh, because the state will derive some economic benefit. Um, and you know, one of the things I mentioned, it's the, the kind of possible silver lining here is that because this is going to be a new industry, um, the the territories or states that jump into this first have the opportunity to be leaders in this space and to uh, have a big chunk of this this new industry located in their states. And that's going to come with a lot of economic upside down the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you're at the University of Washington. Are there projects emerging there that you're excited about that you can talk about? Yeah. You know, that's actually how I got into this. So um, I've been working with UW. And just, just to be clear, I'm not a UW employee. I'm uh, a, a trusted partner of sorts, and I'm not the only one. Um, but, uh, what I have been doing for a number of years is helping, uh, academic projects from, uh, the university of Washington and, and elsewhere, um, you know, make that journey from lab to market uh, across something that is called the Valley of death in, in academic commercialization circles. There's a lot of work that gets done where a scientific discovery gets made, but it's a long, long way from there to uh, a product and a company and, you know, a brand and, and being up and running. And there's lots of reasons why technologies don't successfully make that journey. Um, and so the role of EIR is to sort of be the wagon master across the valley of death and help these technologies make it uh, out into the market where they can have an impact. So I've been doing that for a number of years and have spun off a number of companies from UW and, um, you know, they've raised outside money and attracted outside talent and are, are you know, bringing products to market. Um, one of the technologies that I started working with back in 2018 um, is a carbon removal technology. Um, and uh, at the time, uh, there were just some, some impediments uh, in terms of how how this whole thing was going to fit into the the marketplace that uh, we didn't uh, push it right away but uh, about a year ago my schedule freed up a bit and I had been thinking about this technology and I kind of you know picked it back up and uh, turned it around different directions and and got a clear picture of of what is the story for this company and uh, with that in mind, then we wrote a grant proposal for the National Science Foundation, and we just recently were uh, informed that we've we've been funded um, to go uh, see if we can make this technology really work. Um, Are you able to talk about the technology? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it it's it may get a little bit boring, uh, but uh, it is another um, water electrolysis technology. So water electrolysis is the process of splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen using electrical current. Um, and we've known about that for, you know, over 100 years. Um, it is one of the technologies that 
um, uh, you know, people are hoping is going to give us a green energy future because uh, we can use renewable electricity, uh, like wind and solar uh, or geothermal, to um, split water. And then the hydrogen uh, is essentially a fuel source. So it's, um, it's not that um, we're creating energy by splitting water, we're storing energy by splitting water. It's, the hydrogen is almost like a kind of battery right? You split the water and now you've got hydrogen, which you can use in a fuel cell to generate electricity when and where you need it. Um, and so there are actually uh, hundreds of billions of dollars committed to building giant water splitting facilities all around the planet uh, to produce hydrogen for uh, transportation and, and uh, energy production. Um, this technology combines that water splitting with direct air capture, which is the technology that pulls CO2 out of the air and concentrates it. And essentially this, uh, this project called air to x um, combines those two technologies into a single device and a single apparatus so that you've got uh, a device that when you give it power, it will simultaneously be removing CO2 from the air and splitting water, and it uh, generates a, a gas mix of hydrogen and CO2, which are the ingredients that you need, so to speak, to um, manufacture more interesting molecules. So those that CO2 and that hydrogen can then be um, basically smashed together, to put it crudely, uh, to produce um, hydrocarbons. Uh, which could be replacement fuels. So uh, synthetic aviation fuel, for example, um, which allows us to still fly jets, but not do it with fossil fuels. Um, and it also can be used to produce polymers, which are the hard plasticky things all around us, which are today made from fossil fuels. So essentially that technology is designed to hasten the day when we open the last well. Um, if we are able to make these molecules uh, from CO2 that we grab out of the air, then we no, no longer need to suck these molecules out of the ground. Um, so that's, that's one of them, air to X. Air to X, is that what it's called, or air to Yeah, air, air, air to X, yeah. So take air and turn it into whatever right, you want. Right, right. And if I, um, uh, if I understand the thesis, um, one of the things about making synthetic renewable fuel in this way that's interesting is it could ease the transition to a cleaner energy future. Uh, if you've got a, a fuel that's in the end, I think you've described something that's net zero in its life cycle. Uh, but, but there are points in, in, in the circle as it, as it, where it reaches combustion, it's burned again and then releases that CO2, but you then can capture that CO2 and put it back to work. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, in, in, in that uh, in, in that cycle, um, has uh, has the uh, uh, intention been to to uh, take advantage of, of this? I mean, it must be uh, billions or no, maybe even trillions of dollars invested in um, hydrocarbon fuel combustion equipment. Uh, and you know, if you've got it, well, how about you burn clean fuel with it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, there are, um, honestly, there are certain things that we don't know how to do without 
fossil fuels today. And uh, flying airplanes is one example of that, flying jets. You, we, we do have battery powered small aircraft and there's been some demonstrations of, you know, like little commuter air, aircraft that can go a uh, hundred miles or something, but flying big jets around the world, we don't know how to do that without burning fossil fuels because uh, that, that material, that aviation fuel is an extremely dense energy carrier. Um, and, and in addition to the fact that we have millions of planes that are designed to burn it, we actually are, you know, decades away from being able to do that with something else like hydrogen or battery. Uh, and so if we're able to um, still use that transportation technology and equipment, so still use the jet engines that we've learned how to build over the last hundred years um, and the millions of them that are deployed and that technology that we know how to do, um, if we can still use all of that, but make sure that what it's burning is something that came out of the air in the first place, um, then we're at least turning off the spigot, right? We're not taking more carbon out of the ground and spewing it into the air. We've got a circular system where we're taking carbon out of the air and using green energy to combine it with hydrogen back into uh, uh, hydrocarbons, uh, which we turn into aviation fuel, which the jets can burn. And that um, has a number of uh, additional benefits. And not only does it sort of make that particular flight net zero, um, but it also eliminates all of the emissions associated with everything upstream of, of the fuel itself. So all of the emissions and, and environmental issues associated with uh, exploration and drilling and fracking and transport and refining of those fossil fuels to get to the point where you have jet fuel, um, that gets eliminated if that jet fuel is made from CO2 that, that came out of the air. And, and by the way, people are doing this today um, using plants. You know, plants are nature's direct air capture. That's, <laughs> that's the original direct air capture, right? Photosynthesis. Plants take CO2 out of the air and they turn it into um, more complicated molecules. And some of those molecules we eat and some of those molecules we uh, turn into oil and cook with. And some of those molecules we turn into oil and then uh, modify that oil into um, fuels that we can burn in vehicles like ethanol or uh, aviation fuel. Um, but the same thing can also be done mechanically, electromechanically by grabbing the CO2 out of the air and combining it with hydrogen that we get by splitting water and uh, essentially mimicking that natural process, uh, but doing it um, you know, in much greater density, uh, through, you know, uh, electromechanical systems. Sure. Yeah. Now it, it, we're nearing the end of our hour. So I want to kind of turn, turn, turn the future scope on again, um, and ask you to look at 2030. This is the year when the U S has promised to achieve 50% decarbonization as have many other nations. It's a, you know, considered to be a key goal to, to, get to that kind of uh, 1.5 or even two degree goal that uh, IPCC and uh, the UNFCCC, the uh, climate summits have um, have been trying to, to get us toward. And, and getting there by 2030, it, you know, it, it, it's almost stupefyingly ambitious, but uh, this, let's just imagine the role of these technologies. For example, 
by 2030 will will fuel made by the processes you've just describing likely be powering half the jets if we get on if we board a jet are half the jets you board going to have this fuel i sure hope so um there is uh, a lot of interest in sustainable aviation fuel um by the airlines themselves right they know they've got a problem not only in terms of uh, being good citizens of the planet um, by by cutting their emissions, but also in terms of uh, the attitudes of the consumers that are buying the airline tickets. And so uh, the airlines and the airplane manufacturers are all very interested in learning how to how to make sustainable aviation fuel a reality. Um, so I, I certainly hope that by 2030 we're, we're seeing you know half the jets, uh, flying on SAF, but maybe, you know, the curve may not be exactly like that because we are still learning how to do it. So at least what we'd like to see by 2030 is that, uh, one or more or several technologies for producing fuels like that, um, not just SAF, but, um, you know, if we want to go down the list, renewable natural gas, there's massive infrastructure for, for using natural gas and same thing. We can power that with stuff that, uh, isn't pulled out of the ground. Um, that, uh, at least several technologies for making those are proven and operating at scale. And we're building the plants that are going to, uh, power the entire fleet, uh, to the extent that we, know that we're not able to transition things uh, off of those kinds of fuels now and so that could be in long distance shipping for example yes trains and and ships and uh jet planes those are examples also various industrial processes that need super high heat um we we don't know how to generate that heat today uh you know, uh, without burning fossil fuels. And we have all these facilities that are built to burn those molecules. So um, if we can supply those fuels uh, with carbon that was captured out of the air, either by uh, something that looks like a big air conditioner or by a plant, either way, uh, if we can capture the carbon out of the air and then turn it into uh, things that those facilities can use, then we're no longer taking carbon out of the ground and spewing it into the air. So essentially, it's one of the ways to, um, uh, you know, to turn off the spillage. Um, and and in addition, if we're doing that with carbon that's captured out of the air uh, and we get really good at it, um, then again, that lets us raise our sights even higher and say, well, you know, hey, now we're really good at this and it's not as expensive as it used to be. Why don't we do a lot more of it and really clean up the mess we made in the first place? Well said. Well, I, with that, I, I'm going to uh, reintroduce you for those who haven't caught your name. This is Mike Robinson from the University of Washington, entrepreneur in residence, uh, doing a lot of work on carbon removal technologies. And he's just given this thank you, by the way, an excellent overview of the state of the art and the hopes for the future. Uh, and with that, I'll sign off. This is Brad Warren, host of the Changing Waters podcast. Uh, and I want to uh, again offer my thanks to Tyler Buckingham and the crew at ASPN, who've just been wonderful partners to work with producing and distributing this work. Mm-hmm.